I wonder if as we have been working through Genesis, if you guys have ever stopped and wondered, what was God doing before Genesis 1? What do you think he was doing before creation? Was he pacing, waiting for creation? Was he twiddling his thumbs, ready to create planets and to create people? Was he reading tabloids in eternity's waiting room, ready for day one? No. What do you think he was doing, though? Jesus actually tells us. In John 17, verse 24, he tells us, when he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Love. That's what was happening before day one. Love. From the Father to the Son and to the Spirit. The Trinity was sharing exuberant love with each other. And it made them very, very happy. They had everything they needed. God did not create planets because he was bored. No, he had everything in himself. He was happy in himself. And friends, he could have kept it that way. He didn't need a day one or a day two. He didn't need you or me. Acts 17 tells us that. But he did create. He did create you and he created me. He even planned out this night for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? It was because he wanted to show us his condescending, unifying, compelling glory. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John 17, John 17, verse 22. We're going to look at two verses tonight, verses 22 and 23. This is Jesus speaking. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I think the main idea of our text tonight is this. God's condescending glory unites the church, and the church's glorious unity compels the world. And I think the main idea of our text tonight and of the sermon is this. God's condescending glory unites the church, and the church's glorious unity compels the the world. We're going to look at this main idea with three questions. I want us to look at three questions tonight as we work through these two verses. Question number one, how does glory condescend? Question number two, how does, how does condescending glory unite? And question number three, how does condescending glorious unity compel? The first part of verse 22 is our first question, which is, how does glory condescend? And it condescends first by descending from the Father to the Son. 
Notice that I did not say condescend from the Father to the Son. The Father and the Son are equal in glory. There are no tears of glory. It is not gold, silver, and bronze within the Trinity. They all share equal glory. What does the Catechism say? The Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. But our verse makes it seem that they weren't equal in power and glory. Did you guys see that? Did you guys wonder that? The word given, verse 22, the glory that you have given me. And when we use that word given, we imply that there was a time when we did not have that thing that was given to us. Right? It's I gave you this paper. There was this moment before you got the paper that you did not have it. If that is true of the Son, then that would mean that God was not triune. That God was not equal in power and glory within the three persons. There would be a hierarchy of glory within God. And that would mean that our Bibles have been lying to us. We might as well go home and watch Elf tonight, because all of this is not true. But that's not the case. That's not the case. God is equal in power among the three persons of the Trinity, and it's because of this. From eternity past, the Father has always been giving the Son his glory. There was no start date to the giving of glory because he's been giving the glory for eternity. Or we could say it this way. There's never been a moment where the Father has not given the Son equal glory. And there's never been a moment where the Father has not been. So there's never been a moment where the Son hasn't had divine glory. Those are a lot of double negatives. (laughs) Sorry to all of you English majors out there. But it is true. There's never been a moment where the Father and Son have not shared equal glory, where the Father has not been giving His Son glory. Theologian Michael Reeves describes it this way. He uses the image of a cascade. There is this eternal, continual cascade from the Father to the Son. The Father giving the Son His glory. The Father giving the Son His love. This is amazing. This cascade has reached to us. It has come to us. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Glory condescends from the Son to the church. And we do use the word condescends now. He is God and we are not. And we need him to condescend to us. We need his condescending love. We need his condescending glory. We are just man. What do we look at this past Sunday? We are just small humans creating our own babbles that look like sandcastles to God. He has to come to us. We need God's glory to condescend to us. And there's good news tonight. It has. It has condescended to us. When though, when did his glory start condescending? Before the foundation of the world. 
before creation, when God planned to redeem you and to redeem me. An old pastor, a guy named John Flavel, has this imaginary picture, this imaginary conversation that the father had with the son. And it is imaginary, but I think there is some truth here. It's long, but I think it will give us encouragement tonight. This is God's plan to redeem us. Here you may suppose the father to say, when driving his bargain with Christ for you, the father speaks, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. The son responds, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Bring them all in that there be no after-reckonings with them. At my hands shall thou require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs, and they should suffer for it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father responds, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatement. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. The son responds, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me, I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, I am content to take it. And then God made the world, and glory kept descending. It kept descending through creation. Romans 1, his invisible attributes have been clearly made known to us. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Everything in creation testifies to condescending glory. Each sunrise speaks to a God who is revealing himself as kind. Each dinner with friends is revealing to you a God who is personal and warm and relational. Each bite of food shows the kindness and love of God. Everything, everything that you see in creation behind it is a God of condescending love showing himself to you, pouring out his heart to you to say, look at me, look how kind I am, look how powerful I am. It's revelation to you, and he had to condescend to show you that. It gets better, though. It gets better. God spoke. God has spoken, and glory has condescended through our Bibles. If we did not have God's word, we wouldn't know the God behind the sunrise and behind the dinner with friends and behind each bite of food and behind all of creation. We would have to just wonder. We'd have to make up a God in our own imagination. But God has spoken. He has condescended to us 
He has opened up his heart. And behind each verse in your Bibles, there is a God showing condescending love, condescending glory. Is this how you read your Bibles? When you look at your Bible, do you see a God who is emptying out his heart to you, who is stooping down saying, know me, know my love. I'm not going to ask you to come up with a new Bible reading plan right now. We've got a few more weeks before we get to the start of the year, and then we can start giving that application. But right now, I want to encourage you, tomorrow morning, when you get to your Bible, when you open it up, behind each verse, consider God's condescending glory, his condescending love. It doesn't seem like it could get much better than that, right? A God who speaks to us, who shows us his love through his word. It doesn't seem like it gets much better than that. But it does. God came down to us. He not only created the world, he not only spoke, but he himself, glory himself, came down to us. And through the incarnation, he has not only just given us words, he has given us the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of goodness and truth. What does it say next? And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. He has brought glory down to us. And it gets better than that. Why did he come down to us? Matthew 121. For they shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Glory condescended in the incarnation because Jesus wanted to save you from your sins. God the Son took the penalty for our unrighteousness and gave us the gift of his righteousness and glory condescended through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's through the Savior that we receive his glory. Whenever he was creating the world and whenever he was speaking, we could see his glory. He could show us his glory, but it would have been out of reach of, from us. It would have been just something that we were spectators of. But through his life, death, and resurrection, he has given us his glory. In Christ, we have his glory. And with his glory, with his glory, this is hard to believe, but God rejoices over us. The Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rejoices over you, brothers and sisters, 
like they have rejoiced over each other for all of eternity. It's good news. Get this. In Christ, the tidal waves of joy that each member of the Trinity evokes from the others by his beauty fall on you. And their breakers of delight won't stop crashing on you for all of eternity. All of the beauty that the Trinity has, that attracts the the joy and the delight of all the other members in Christ, you are swept up into that Trinitarian current of delight because you are in Christ. Could it get much better than that? It actually does. That Trinitarian delight is not only a reality for you, but it is a reality for every believer in this room and every believer in Albuquerque and every believer in New Mexico and the United States and the world. Every Christian. Every Christian has been given the glory of the Son. What do you think would happen if we viewed each other that way? What do you think would happen if we looked at each other and saw the glory of Jesus? Member looking at another member and seeing Jesus. And that member looking at that member and seeing Jesus. What do you think would happen? I think we would draw closer together, wouldn't we? We would come together. We would be unified. Which brings us to our second question. How does condescending glory unite? Through the glory of Jesus. Let's read verses 22, the first part of 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. It's the glory of Jesus, and it's the only the glory of Jesus that unites this church. It's only him. It's only his glory. And in one sense, that unity has already been accomplished. It is already a done deal through the person and work of Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14 tells us that. It is finished. We are unified. But in another sense, we have to maintain that unity, right? Ephesians 4, verse 3, we have to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we do that? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? By looking at the glory that originally united us. By looking at the glory of Jesus in one another. And how do we do that? How do we look at the glory of Jesus in one another? Well, we need the right vantage point. We need the right overlook to see God's glory in each other. When friends and family come and visit us, I like to take them up around the east side of the mountains to the top of the Sandia Crest. 
And we'll go back you know, down into Albuquerque and we'll hit up all of the good restaurants and take them to parks and different neighborhoods. Obviously take them here. But at some point I want to take them up to the top of the Sandia Crest. Why? Because you guys know from up there you can see the whole city. You can see where the reservation land is and you can see where the city starts and you can see the river and you can see the uh, the trees that come around the river. From up there, you can see the whole city. We need a vantage point like this if we're going to look at the glory of Jesus. And the gospel is that overlook. The good news is that overlook. If you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, I want you guys to look at something. It won't take us long. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts, what does he use? Look at verse 4. The gospel. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's the gospel that collects all the glories of Christ into one shot, one beautiful, multifaceted shot. So we need to get up to the gospel mountain if we really want to see the glory of Jesus in one another. Do you really want to experience gospel unity? Before you look at anything else in other believers, before you look at their sin, and before you look at their personality, and before you look at what their background is, to look at the glory of Jesus in them. Look at what they have in Christ. David Pryor is a quote about the Corinthian church that I think is helpful here. Pryor says, Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ Jesus before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. That disciplined statement of faith is rarely made in local churches. The warts are examined and lamented, but often there's no vision of what God has already done in Christ. Maybe you've heard before that you should preach the gospel to yourself every day. I think that's good advice. Actually, I think that's great advice. That may be some of the best advice you could receive. But I'd also encourage you all to preach the gospel to your assessment of other believers every day too. Preach the gospel to your assessment of other believers every day. And I have one resource to help us with this. How do you preach the gospel to your assessment of the believers of this church? It's by pulling 
this out, which you received earlier in the year. Our prayer directory, our membership directory, going through it every day, maybe picking a page, maybe choosing one letter of the alphabet and working through it alphabetically, but praying through and looking for how the gospel applies to the members of our church. Look at the glory of predestination. Look at the glory of predestination as you scan through your membership directory. We don't have a pre-released copy of the book of life. But the Bible does tell us that we can know that God chose the members in this directory. How do I know that? How can I say something so audacious is that we can be able to say that yes, God predestined so-and-so in this directory? Because the Apostle Paul did that. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul wasn't looking in at the book of life when he said that. We see him do this with Ephesians. We see this in Philippians. We see over and over, we see it in Romans. We see him talking about Rufus as being chosen by the Lord. How could Paul do that? Because he would look at the fruit in a church. He would see evidence of conversion, and he would trace that back to predestination. When he saw true spiritual change in a church, he made a beeline to the predestining grace of God. When Paul saw a river of sanctification, he followed it upstream to the spring of predestination. And as we see fruit in each other's lives, as we re- go through our prayer directory, we can do the same thing. We can look through the names and praise God for his predestining grace. We can look through here and say, praise God that God chose Quinn Looker and Rebecca Looker. We can flip a few pages over and we can say, praise God for his predestining grace of Dan Munchow and Bethany Nance and Joel Nance and Patrick O'Brien. We can go through this directory and praise God for his predestining grace. And we can look at the glory of regeneration as well. Desert Springs, may we never grow bored with the miracle of new birth. As we look through our directory, may we never become bored that these people have been born again through the Holy Spirit. I confess that sometimes I do grow bored with that. On Tuesday mornings when we meet together as church leaders, very often one of the elders will thank God for saving so-and-so, as we pray through the directory. By God's grace, some of the times, even I would say maybe most of the time, I'm encouraged by that prayer, but I'll confess to you, there are some times where I am bored by that. I was like, of course God saved them. He saved so many other people. Regularity can breed boredom. It does with me. 
but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. I think we get this with, with different things around in the world, and one of them is when a couple finds out that they are expecting. Y'all, thousands of babies were born yesterday in the world. And thousands more will be born tomorrow. But I can tell you one thing. Later today, some point in the world, some place in the world, there will be a mom who finds out that she is expecting a baby. And she will not be bored. (laughs) Friends, look around the room. You are looking at faces that used to be dead and now are alive. God raised them up through the power of his spirit. We can look through the names of this membership directory and thank God for his regenerating grace. We can thank God for his regenerating grace in Cole Sandin and Cody Seeler and Lee Scott. We can work through this prayer directory and thank God for his regenerating grace in every member of this church. We can thank God and we can look at the glory of justification. Our membership directory is full of sinners, but it is also soaked in the blood of Jesus. Amen? I don't mean to downplay sin when I say that. We can't downplay sin. We've seen too much in Genesis already, right? One sin led to murder, a global flood, Tower of Babel, ethnic strife. We can't minimize sin. But we shouldn't exalt the power of sin over the work of Christ either. We shouldn't exalt the power of sin over the work of Christ either. Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin will increase in our church, but grace abounds. Robert Murray McShane has a great quote. He says, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. What if we applied that to how we saw other believers in this room? What if we applied that to every member in this prayer directory? For every look at them and their sin, And their weakness, we took ten looks at Christ. Let's make sin in the church a springboard to thank God for justifying the church. Look through the names. Alphabetically, one page a day. Or however you want to do it. But look through the names and praise God for his justifying grace. Praise God that he justified Kirk Irvin and Patrick Angstrom, and Matt Ellison, and Roxanne Fannin, and Ron Frazier, and David Gallegos. Praise God for his justifying grace. Look for his justifying grace. And look at the glory of sanctification. Look at the glory of sanctification. 
I still remember where I was. I still remember the room that I was sitting in. After Lee and I found out that we were expecting Jane, I remember I was sitting there and the doctor turned to us and said that Jane had fingernails. Fingernails. I was floored. I couldn't believe it. Fingernails. Now, I could care less about keratin. I couldn't care less about fingernails. But why was I blown away? Why did I have that silly grin on my face when the doctor told me that? Why haven't I not been able to forget that moment? What those fingernails represented. They represented life. They represented growth. So I didn't turn to the doctor and say, well, when is she going to be able to talk? Why can't she do long division yet? No. I saw the little bit of growth, and I knew what was coming down the road. By God's grace, I knew that will happen. Jane's talking now. I knew the order of development, and I knew that the fingernails meant more is on the way. Y'all, we are a ragtag bunch here tonight. We've got fingernails, and that's about it. But more is coming. More is coming, and it means something glorious. It means new life. Look through the names of this membership directory and praise God for his sanctifying grace in Alyssa Bird and Daniel Calzada and Ernesto Camarena and Jordan Carnahan and Calvin Chan. Praise God for his sanctifying grace. Praise God for the glory of glorification. Look at the glory of glorification. C.S. Lewis says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Lewis was speaking Paul's language here. Paul couldn't think of a church without thinking about their glorification. Just read through his letters. Almost every letter has some note, if not every letter has some note of glorification. Paul couldn't stop thinking about others' glorification even when he saw the dirtiness of their sin. When you're up on the Sandia Crest, you can look down onto the Rio and, 
And we've really enjoyed going down to the Rio and swimming. I'm uh, from Tennessee and redneck, so we just go and find any river that we can and swim in it. And we've really enjoyed it. It's been a blast, and Jane likes it. And um, we go there, probably not now, it's a little too cold, but uh, when it warms up, we'll be down there at the Rio again. And I've got to admit, it is not a very impressive river. <laughs> we enjoy it, but it is dirty, especially when you get in it. I try not to think about it, honestly. <laughs> but the Rio doesn't stop in Albuquerque, does it? Now, starting in Colorado, it comes down, it goes into Albuquerque, and it's dirty. But it keeps going. And eventually, it dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico. And the Gulf of Mexico is not boring. It is not dull. It is breathtaking. Friends, tonight, we're in Albuquerque. But we won't stay there. One day, we will go down the river and it will empty up to the ocean of glorification. And the day is coming soon. So pull out your membership directory and go through the names and praise God for his glorifying grace in John Ritter and Henry Roybal and Corin Sayers. Praise God for his glorifying grace. If we will get up to the Gospel Mountain, we will consider the condescending glory of Jesus in each other, we will grow in unity. And that will be very intriguing to a watching world. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. This brings us to our last question, and it will be short, don't worry. How does condescending, glorious unity compel? How does condescending, glorious unity compel? Because what we just talked about, the glory of Jesus in one another, and that unity that comes from looking at the glory of Jesus in one another, the world doesn't have that. The world does not have that kind of unity. Back in college, I worked at REI, and I've got to admit, it was a really great community. We did baby showers, and people were sick. We brought meals to them. We went on trips together. It was a great community. You know, one thing I found out, maybe after, it was about a year or two into it, I realized my coworkers only had friends who liked to do things outdoors. That was their community. What unified them was something that the whole world couldn't share. You pull out the outdoors, and they didn't really want to spend time with someone. They didn't want to bring them a meal. 
They don't want to throw a baby shower for someone who liked to go to the mall. Guys, we have something special here. We have something special. And not only do we have a unity that is not about the outdoors or any other interest, we have a community that is built not on morality, but grace. You can look at any other religion and you can see them unifying around morality. You can look out into the world and you can see different pockets, different sectors of society coming together around a cause or around um, something that is even a good thing. But what happens when someone trips up? What happens when someone breaks whatever code of conduct that they have? The unity goes away. That person or that group of people is shunned. And every group out there in the world, every group, religious or non-religious, can't get around that fact. Because every group, religious or non-religious, doesn't have grace. They don't have a system where justice can be answered and love given. Only Christianity, only the gospel can answer someone else's sin that you see. And, make, and once you see their sin, as disgusting and as vile as it may be, that you can step forward. That when everyone else is going to the other side of the lunchroom, when that person walks in, you go and sit down next to them. Because of the gospel. That unity is compelling. Maybe weird to some, but it's at least compelling. It makes them look in. What is going on there? Why are they friends when they don't have anything in common? And in fact, the things that they disagree about, everyone else in the world is dividing over. Makes people look in. So let's use that. Let's use that compelling community. There are a few ways that I would encourage you to use it, and then we'll be done. One is what's called mob evangelism. A friend of mine, Max Stiles, uses that phrase, mob evangelism. What that basically is, is gathering believers with you to do evangelism. And I love personal evangelism. I love one-on-one evangelism. I would encourage and pray for you guys to have one-on-one meetings with your non-Christian friends. But I'd encourage you to not stop there. Don't stop at personal evangelism. You have something that is intriguing, that is compelling. You have unity within the body of Christ. So bring in your brothers and sisters in Christ into that evangelistic friendship. This Christmas season, take advantage of this. Invite non-Christian friends over But don't just invite non-Christian friends over. Invite another member or two from the church over and have a meal with them. It's one of the greatest apologetics to the incarnation. I'm not just making that up. It's in our text. They will see our unity and they will know that the Father sent the Son.
So you don't have to read every apologetic book on the incarnation. All you got to do is make soup. Make a pot of soup and invite a few believers and unbelievers over for a meal. And that unity will be compelling to them. Another way that you can show off our compelling community, which is in a, uh, that phrase compelling community is in a great book that I'd recommend, um, Compelling Community by uh, Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop, and I would encourage you guys to read that book. Um, Another way that you could um, show off this compelling community is to invite your non-Christian friends and family to church. Invite them to church. This is where we gather together and our unity is is in a display that is far superior to anything you can do by yourself. They see our unity when we gather. And as we do this, slowly, surely, this condescending, glorious unity will compel all of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The cascade of the Father's love to the Son, from the Son to the church, will reach to the ends of the earth. And we'll trade this meal for a better meal. We'll trade it for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it doesn't get much better than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, we ask that this unity, this compelling community would go out to the world and the world would come in and know the love of you to the Son. In your Son's name, amen.